issue called acceptance, approval. Everybody is fighting for this. Everybody is hungry for this, acceptance. Just a little example by way of introduction. You remember the movie uh, I Heart Huckabees? It's got uh, Jude Law, who is like uh, a business executive in this big corporation called Huckabees. And he's going out with the sort of the supermodel advertising <coughs> lady that's kind of promoting this uh, company, uh, Naomi Watts. So they're in this relationship, and she kind of gets involved with the existential detectives and through this work of sort of philosophically finding herself, she kind of rebels against all of the superficiality of the, uh, you know, the, the supermodel scene, and so she starts dressing in these really baggy clothes. She starts eating chocolate, so she got like chocolate all over her face all the time, and she's wearing that bonnet. You remember this? Uh, so she's just like totally rebelled against. I'm, I'm no longer going to sell myself out to. The, the pressure of, of being pretty anymore. And so they have this conversation, Jude Law and Naomi Watts. And she looks at him and says, do you love me? And he says, yes, of course. And she goes, even with the bonnet? And he goes, like, <laughs> negative. <laughs> but that's the, that's the issue. All of us are looking for somebody to come at us from the outside and say to us, I accept you. I approve of you. I love you even with the bonnet on, even with your messiness, even with you when there's no masks, when there's no pretense for who you really are, I approve of you. And this issue is deeply central to our hearts. And it is loaded into this biblical word called righteousness. That word, uh, the basic meaning of that word means approval, acceptance, undergoing the scrutiny of, of God's eye and coming out on the other side as being Approved, And so Jesus begins this parable talking about people who have a bad view of their status, a bad view of the way that they are accepted. They are confident in their own righteousness, verse 9 says. So what we're going to do tonight is ask this question. How can I be accepted for me? How can I be accepted? How can I gain this status that the Bible seems to assume that I can get? How do I get it? So what Jesus does is present us with two different strategies on how we get this approval, how we get this new status, this new identity. And he starts off by giving us a a strategy that doesn't work, and he gives us a strategy that does work. So the first strategy is somebody that that believes that they are justified, somebody that believes that their status is based in their goodness, they, are, they believe that they're justified according to their goodness. And he gives us a picture of a Pharisee. So, okay, what is a Pharisee? For anybody who's familiar with the New Testament, you immediately think, oh, Pharisee, bad guy, bad person. But when this story was actually told, in its cultural context, the Pharisees were the good guys. They were the ones that were actually concerned about the law. They were moral, the upstanding citizens of their day. They were the good husbands, the good fathers, the good citizens. These were the really good, moral people of their day. So, okay, we get this Pharisee. Okay, two quick questions to ask about this guy. What is the root of his heart, and what is the fruit that we see played out in his life. In other words, what's sort of the baseline operating system of the way that he views himself and God and life, and how does that manifest in his his day-to-day life? Okay? So the first question, what's the root system in his heart? What's sort of underneath the surface? Uh, Verse 9, to some who were confident of their own 
righteousness. He tells this story. He's addressing, Jesus is targeting people that are confident in their own righteousness. Basically, they have laws and rules and moral standards, and they have the ability to keep those moral standards and moral rules. And that's the reason why they feel confident. They're confident in their ability to be good and decent people, right? In other words, they are basing their justification on their sanctification. They are basing their status before God on their religious performance, on their moral performance. This guy basically represents what the majority of American evangelicalism really believes. That you do good things, and at the end of your life you die, and God's going to judge and kind of weigh your good deeds against your bad deeds, and your good deeds will most likely win out, and you'll kind of get in. And so this guy is operating on that system, and he says, well, I've done a lot of good things. I'm a good, decent guy, so... I'm kind of a shoe-in. So that's sort of the root structure of his heart. That's the root system. How does that play out in his life? What are, what are the fruits that we see? What are the marks that we see uh, evidencing themselves as a result of that kind of operating system? Well, the first fruit that I want to draw your attention to is his elitism. His superiority, his elitism. It says in verse 9, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. This is the guy who sizes up other people and says, We're not just different because of X, Y, or Z characteristic, but it's because of those X, Y, or Z characteristic that I'm actually superior to you. We're not just different, I'm superior. And so this is how he plays this out in verse 11. He stands up and he prays about himself. God, I thank you. I'm not like other men. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. We kind of read this and think, this is so over the top. Nobody talks like this anymore. Nobody stands up and actually prays this. Nobody says this. Nobody thinks this anymore. And I want to say, really, have you ever uh, thought or said something like this? Oh, I would never do that. I would never uh, do what my roommate does. Uh, or you think about that girl down the hall and say, you know, she's got friends coming over and staying in her uh, dorm room. And you think to yourself or you say to yourself, I would never have a guy in my dorm room like she does. Or you even begin to think about your own uh, spiritual things. Well, I'm involved with RUF and my roommate or my friends aren't even involved in campus ministries. Or you think just because you're in RUF, you begin to sort of have this uh, elitism creep in in the sense of, well, uh, I go to RUF where it's deep and it's theological and we sing songs that are you know, cerebral and deep, un- unlike such and such campus ministry that's so shallow and superficial and emotional. I mean, do you catch yourself saying things like that? That is uh, elitism. Elitism and superiority, looking down your nose at other people, are the fruit that is born out of a heart that is basing its status on its goodness. Just think about it. The, the reason that I'm okay, the reason that you're, how you're answering that question, this is the reason why I'm okay. It's because of what I do. I go to RUF. I read the Bible. I actually pay attention to the words that we sing here. Or I pray. Or I go to church. When you are basing your status on the activities that you're doing, then you just have to look down on your nose at the people that don't. It's just built into the system. Christopher Hitchens if you are not familiar, he is a, um, a journalist, and he, he wrote a book within the past couple of years that was a New York Times bestseller. And the name of his book is God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. He's, he's obviously not a fan of 
religion or uh, God or anything. But this is how he describes, this is how he defines religion. He says, religion is this, that if you obey the rules and commandments that God has lovingly prescribed, then you qualify for an eternity of bliss and repose. He assumes that people are accepted before God. Religion is being accepted before God based off of your behavior and your actions. And when you obey these right rules, then God lets you into this theme park that he calls it in his book. Uh, And so he spends 300 pages showing how religion is the thing that is responsible for racism, sectarianism, genocide, violence, oppression, marginalization. He's tracing it all back to religion. And here's what he means. Here's his basic argument. His argument is that if you build your identity, if you build your status on your good behavior and rule keeping, then this provides you with the resources to draw lines in the sand. And to feel superior to others, to marginalize others, and even, exci- even in some cases to either subtly or to actually aggressively oppress somebody else. This is the mentality that uh, justifies why it would be okay to kill somebody in the name of religion. Killing the infidels or killing um, the Jewish people, whatever. It's this mentality that is promoting all of the poison in the world, he argues. And it may surprise you to hear me say this, but he's right. Because look at the Pharisee. What is he saying here? He's saying, thank goodness I'm not like those people over there. If you have that same basic root structure in your heart, then you will avoid certain people. Certain people that you define as sinful for whatever way that they're breaking your moral code, your uh, value structure. And so it's really easy to distance yourselves from those people that uh, sleep around, or those people that get trashed, or uh, homosexuals, or whoever you're grouping into that group and only congregating with the people that hold your value system. That separation, that elitism is born out of a heart that is basing its status on its goodness. That's fruit number one. The second fruit that we see is insecurity. His self-image is so fragile, he has to stand up in front of everybody to pray. Did you notice this? Verse 11, it says that the Pharisee stood up and he prayed about himself. And he goes on to pray. Why is he standing? Why the need to stand up and pray? It's because his image is so insecure, he needs to bolster himself by getting all of the attention. He's only feeling secure about himself when other people are noticing him as being spiritual. You know when you have something, you don't have to go around announcing it? I mean, I know that I have brownish, blondish hair. I don't really feel the need to inform everybody all the time about my hair color because it's obvious. I know it's there. It's people who are going around telling everybody that they're good. Those are the people that are so insecure because they know they're not good. It's the people who have to constantly inform you, well, I was at church on Sunday. I was at Bible study this week. You're constantly having to sort of PR yourself to the world because your, your sense is so fragile, it's so insecure. I've got to let everybody know about this. This need for approval, this insecurity of, of, uh, uh, of needing other people's approval plays itself out in a lot of different ways. It could be very simply that it's just hard to say no to people. I mean, this is kind of my problem. And so you, you don't say no to somebody and you end up over committing or, or way over involved and way stressed out because you've overbooked yourself. 
right? Or it's just a matter of wanting to please people. And have you ever had this happen to you where you book the same thing in the same exact time and you're trying to please both parties and you end up pleasing nobody because you can't make either of them? And then they get mad at you and you're like, you get defensive because you're saying, hey, I was trying to please you. You get all defensive and angry because your whole uh, basis is, hey, doesn't that count for anything that I'm trying to please you in this? It's born out of a heart that is so insecure, desiring other people's approval, you can't say no. Because you'll risk the approval. This is sort of the soft version of insecurity. But there are lots of different hard versions that come out of this. I mean, think about eating disorders. Every magazine, every advertisement is communicating something to the women in this room that says you are not okay the way that you look. But if you change, if you have this figure, if you have this size, then you'll be accepted. And so if you buy into this lie, then of course you're willing to uh, stick your finger down your throat, to shed the pounds, to, to go down this route, to need other people's approval and acceptance like this. Or just think about excessive drinking. You know, you show up to college for the first time, you want to get in with this group of people, and they're all drinking, so you're drinking, you want to, you want to fit in, you start end up compromising the values that you had because you're so insecure by wanting other people's approval, wanting other people's acceptance. And of course, um, this also plays itself out in regards to sex, your sexual ethics. Maybe you're just so emotionally insecure. Some of you girls have looked at guys and said, okay, I'm willing to compromise some of my ethics. I'm willing to compromise some of my values to give him what I want, to give him what he wants. I have to give him what he wants or else this relationship is going to dissolve and fall apart. So you're willing to compromise on certain things to give up things uh, for the sake of the relationship, for the sake of that approval, for the sake of somebody else looking at you and saying, I accept you. All of these problems, all of these fruits are born out of a heart that is basing its status on its goodness. Third fruit, really quickly, self-centeredness. He begins by praying and thanking God, which is a good thing, right? But uh, look at what he does. You you know when you, um, like after graduation or uh, Christmas or something, your mom or your your parents make you write those thank you notes to... uh, to, to the people that gave you gifts or actually showed up at your graduation. And so you write, Dear Uncle Eugene, and uh, thank you so much. And then fill in the blank for what they did, right? But look at what he says in verse 11. He says, The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. And he goes on to talk about himself. Notice how many times he says, I, in this little prayer. It's a two-verse prayer. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. This is why it's so dangerous. This is why it can be dangerous to be involved in religious activity. Because you can show up, and you can look spiritual, and you can look humble, and it can seem like you're concerned about God and concerned about others, but it's really all about you. It's about satisfying your needs, having certain people notice you, being seen at the Bible study or whatever. It, it, it can be just completely self-centeredness with wanting nothing to do with God. It can just be evil and wickedness dressed up in fancy clothes, fancy packaging of just self-centeredness. So Jesus gives us this picture of somebody who is basing their status on their goodness. And we see a character who is rigid, and insecure, and uh, uh, 
self-righteous, and underneath everything is this heart that is dominated not by God, but by self. And if you, have, if you are operating on this playing field, this is what is making you uh, rude and defensive and touchy. You can't receive criticism, right? Because if your whole status is based on your moral performance, if somebody points out your moral performance is not measuring up, then of course you have to defend it because otherwise your whole uh, identity comes crumbling down. This is the reason why so many people have burnt out with Christianity. You realize this is, I mean, some, some of you have, may have come from some of these churches. This may be some of you in this situation tonight. And this may be the reason why you hate Christianity. This is all this pressure and all these rules and it's just tearing me up and it's making me uh, insecure and self-righteous and looking down on my nose at everybody and I'm touchy and I'm rude and nobody gets a word in with me. This may be some of you. And you have to realize, if you are a Christian, this is the reason why non-Christians hate Christianity. Because they see people who are claiming the name of Jesus acting like this. And who in the world would want anything to do with that? Who in the world would want to show up and uh, be friends with somebody like that? But this is the question. Is this Christianity? Is this what Christianity really is? What is Jesus' assessment of this guy? What is Jesus' verdict on this guy's status? Here it is in verse 14. I tell you that this man, and he's talking about the tax collector, not the Pharisee, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. Not justified. Not accepted. This person's strategy did not work. And it's a dangerous position you find yourself in because it's really easy to think, hey, I'm a Christian. Of course I'm a Christian. And maybe you aren't. Maybe you're not. I mean, this text uh, is opening up your heart and mind and asking us to uh, ask some very deep questions to ourselves. Is this us? Do we look like this? Do we look uh, insecure? Do we look down our nose at other people, either personally or culturally? Do we, are we driven by insecurity and a desire for everybody to know what we're thinking? And, or uh, or uh, rather, we're, we're driven by a desire to want to know what everybody's thinking about us. Do we have any joy in our life whatsoever? Or are we just dominated by uh, this impulse to perform morally, spiritually, and it's burning us out? And if this is you, you are a Pharisee. And the text is inviting you to something much better. And if you're sitting there right now, hearing this and being mad at me, Matt, how dare you insinuate that maybe I'm not a Christian? Let that impulse speak to you. Why are you being so defensive right now? If, if the reason that you're going to, hey, I'm a Christian, I've been at RUF every week this semester, then that should be informing you of something. You are basing your very status, your very identity on your performance, on your goodness. So Jesus gives us a problem here. And he says, some people are trying to base their status on their goodness. And this solution does not work. In the end, they do not receive the verdict of accepted, of justified. And this may not look exactly like you, but if you have that same root structure, it's the same basic machinery that is operating in your life. And so it may play itself out in in other ways. So Jesus now gives us the solution that does work. Somebody that is not... Somebody that believes that they are not justified by their goodness, but rather by God's grace. Not goodness, but grace. Excuse me. And he gives us a tax collector. Okay? What's a tax collector? A tax collector is, uh, well, 
Think of this uh, culturally at the time. Rome had come in and had taken over politically in the land of Israel. So they were in charge. They had subjugated this nation. And so a tax collector was somebody that was a Jewish person that worked for the man, worked for the big Roman pagan man. And so he sold out his countrymen. So everybody hated tax collectors. They were total sellouts. But on top of that, what they did was, let's say they needed to charge 5% from the Roman government to collect their taxes. They could charge 30% if they wanted to. There's nobody to stop you. If, if somebody tried to stop you, you just kind of whistle over the big Roman guard. And, uh, you know, you've got the Roman government backing you up. So, in this story, you have, like, the most upstanding citizen, like, your deacon or your elder at your church back home, and, like, this total slum, scumbag, slumbag, really bad guy, really good guy. You get it. Okay, same question with this guy. What's the root and what's the fruit? What's the operating system in his heart? Uh, Look at what he says. He says, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Mercy in a generic sense is to um, not receive what you know you deserve. He's pleading with God because he knows that he deserves something. He knows that he deserves God's displeasure. He He knows he doesn't deserve God's favor. And so he has nothing to stand on. And so all he's doing is just begging and pleading for mercy. He says, I don't have any shred of goodness that I can kind of throw up to you and offer up to you and just hope maybe you'll grade on a curve this time. He scraps all of that. He says, I got nothing. Unless you're merciful, I'm ruined. But actually that word mercy is is pretty interesting. It's not the typical word for mercy. It actually means atonement, propitiation. So what he's doing is he's asking God, I know you can't scrap your law. I'm not asking you to sacrifice your justice. I'm asking for for you to take it out on somebody else. I can't atone for this, and I know you're not going to bend the rules for for my case. If somebody does not step in and take this atonement for me, I'm ruined. And of course that word is the same word that we get in Romans 3.25, talking about Jesus that God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. This tax collector has a heart that is centered, it is rooted in the gospel, knowing that I'm, I'm not getting in except for God's grace to pour out his displeasure on somebody else so that I can get what I don't deserve, namely acceptance. I don't deserve to be accepted, but because of Jesus, I can be. So this is the root system. This is the root structure in his heart. How does this play out in his life? What's the fruit? Well, two quick pieces of fruit. First thing, he has a re-engineered self-perspective. He has a re-engineered self-perspective. Look at, listen to how he views himself in verse 13. He says, uh, God have mercy on me, a sinner. A sinner. The English translation is not actually the same exact thing that's going on in the Greek. Because in the Greek, there is not an indefinite article before sinner. There's a definite article. So what he's really saying is, God have mercy on me, the sinner. He has a deep realization that he needs God's mercy more than anybody I've got nothing to stand on. Nobody needs God more than me, he's thinking. I am the lowest of the low, and it's totally out of the question for me to try and pull myself up. You know, the, um, 
Postal Service, uh, the, the band, their first album, the only album as far as I know, the title of it is called Give Up. When I first saw that, I thought, oh, that's so cynical. That's so depressing. Give up. But the older I get, the more that I'm realizing, I think that's actually good advice. In the sense of, give up on yourself. This tax collector has admitted defeat. He has given up. I've got nothing. I can't bring anything to you and say, here, this is why I'm good. This is why you should kind of bend the rules in my favor. He is totally pleading with him, pleading with God uh, as he's repenting for his sin. The Pharisee can't repent, right? Why can't he repent? Because his whole identity is based on his performance. So if you, if you point out any sin, he's just going to get mad at you. But if you point out the sin of a tax collector, of a Christian, they should agree with you. Of course I'm a sinner. Of course I've screwed up. Even if I want to get defensive, I know that there's something I probably did screw up in some way. Quick to repent. And this re-engineered self-perspective does two things. It makes you humble and at the same time utterly secure. Look at how humble he is. He doesn't even look up to heaven. He, he, he's he's uh, looking down. He's realizing, I got nothing. I've given up. He has a completely humbled sense of his uh, identity. Uh, Rufus Wainwright uh, wrote this great song back in the day called Cigarettes and Chocolate Milk. You've heard of it? It's a great song. Uh, But this song is him coming clean with all of his addictions, coming clean with all the stuff in his life that is just uh, messed up, the things that he constantly gravitates towards that is getting him in trouble. And so he says this line, I'm a little bit Tower of Pisa. I'm a little bit leaning. I'm not upright. So whenever I see you, please be kind if I'm a mess. This whole song is this confession. I'm a mess. When I see you, please be kind to me. Here I am. The gospel does the same thing. It makes us unbelievably honest with ourselves. It humbles us enough to know, I got nothing. Here's my junk. This is me. But notice, at the same time, this tax collector is not like a whimpering, woe-is-me cynic either. He's unbelievably secure. In verse 13, he's praying, and he's standing at a distance. Why is he standing at a distance as he's praying? Well, there's probably a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is that he doesn't need to be in the spotlight. He is so secure with who he is and the mercy that he is going to receive. He doesn't need all the attention. He doesn't need the fanfare. He doesn't need the spiritual veneer. He is content being by himself and praying and confessing. You see both of these things happening at once. Humility, utter humility, and complete security. You're completely humbled because you are accepted by the gospel of grace. Grace is, I don't deserve this. It humbles you. It makes you realize I've got no basis to be superior or to think superior of anybody else. And I mean anybody else. I don't have any more moral uh, credit to offer to God than a pedophile, than a terrorist. We are equally bankrupt. It completely humbles you because it's a gospel of grace. But yet, you are completely secure because you are accepted. You are accepted with the bonnet on, with your messiness, with all of your addictions, because of Jesus. So he has a completely re-engineered self-perspective, but he also has a renewed status. You saw it at the end. God says, this one is the one that is justified, not the Pharisee. This is the one that is accepted and approved. 
You know, you think about the system. I do all the good stuff. When I die, God weighs it. And then he gives me a verdict. He gives me a grade of either accepted or not accepted. The gospel is you can get that grade. You can get that approval now. You don't have to wait till when you die and God does the weighing. You get the grade now. And you think, well, well, I haven't lived the rest of my life yet. That can't be true. But don't you realize that would be based off of your, the quality of your goodness. And you are not accepted based on the quality of your goodness. Let me close with this. Uh, Catherine and I just recently watched the movie Seven Pounds with uh, Will Smith. Good movie. Uh, lots of gospelly, redemptive stuff going through it. Because if you've seen it, you know that this guy is literally giving himself away for other people. And so he is tracking down and finding people in the most uh, impossible situations that life has thrown him. And he's trying to assess whether or not um, he should help them. And so the end is, you know, of course, extremely moving. Catherine and I are like bawling on the couch uh, because, it's, because it's so wonderful. He's, he's given himself up for other people. But where it derails from the gospel, the true biblical gospel, is that he is going around assessing people to find out whether or not they are good people, to find out whether or not they deserve this sort of treatment. And so sometimes he runs into some people that have, they're just total shysters and, and bad characters, and he just says, okay, you don't get my favor. What he does is he finds the good, nice people and gives them grace. And if that movie is as moving as it is, if it is as gripping as it is, How much more gripping and moving is the actual gospel where you see criminals' hearts being melted because they are accepted? They are not worthy. They're not, they don't deserve this treatment. But when they get it, you see them completely melt. It is as, if not more, uh, gripping and moving. We're getting ready to sing uh, our last song, and I wanted to kind of set it up for us. It's usually a song that we typically like to sing in the front of an RUF or a church service, but tonight we're going to sing it on the end because it's some, somewhat of an invitation. It's called Come Ye Sinners, a great old hymn uh, written from, I don't know when, a long time ago. And so I want to highlight two lines from this. One is, Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, if you wait around till you're better, you will never come at all. If you are waiting for your act to become clean and then come to God, you won't come because your act is never going to be clean enough. It's never going to be good enough. The glory of the gospel is I come to him like this tax collector, pleading for mercy because I got nothing. I've given up. All of my religiosity, all of my moral uh, rule keeping, it's dirty rags, the Bible says. But here's the last line. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. The only thing God requires is, to, is for you to realize uh, your desperation, your need. The only qualification is to realize you don't qualify. And when you begin to realize that you don't qualify, and you come through the door only by God's grace, then on the other side do you hear God say, you're approved because Jesus is your righteousness. Jesus is your approval. You've got nothing in and of yourself. And so when you are tempted to hold on to that, and say, this is why I'm good. This is why I am somebody. You will receive bad news. But when you come through the door of grace and through the door of the gospel, you hear the wonderful news of you are accepted. You are approved. That is good news. Let me pray for us.
Father, we're grateful for your kindness, for your mercy, for your grace. That we have nothing to offer and we deceive ourselves when we think we do. I pray that you would smash to pieces all of this uh, fake righteousness that we hold on to and that we cling to. And would we come to you completely empty handed, completely humbled and receive the warm embrace of grace and of mercy and of you giving the verdict of our acceptance and approval in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.